Hello and welcome to the first episode of Advance Australia Film, a podcast looking into the history of Australian cinema. Before I get started, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Out of the way, Dobie! What do you call these things again? Missiles. I don't want the crocodiles to eat you. No crocodile will eat me. You kill Pelican. This guy come up with the storm. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Listen, mate, I need to uh, splash the boots. You know, strain the potatoes. I'm trying to think of it not so much as losing a daughter, but more like gaining a son. You're terrible, Muriel. Well, I'm pleased to know you, Jack. What about another beer? My name is Matt Hoffman and I'm a photographer, writer and somewhat filmmaker from Melbourne, Australia. And I kind of realised recently that while I'm a fan of all things film, I have a bit of a blind spot for the industry right here in my own backyard. I've seen heaps of Aussie films and a lot of them are even my favourites, but where did we get started and what's been our contribution to the industry worldwide? When we think of Aussie films, it's hard not to go past the guy in the crocodile skin hat or the clever pig or even the angry guy named Max. But Australia has a rich history of storytelling that sets it apart from the worldwide film landscape. And in our own way, we've certainly made our own mark on the world stage. Throughout this ongoing series, I'll be digging into not only how and where things began, but also some of the stories and scandals that have been left behind surrounding the films, filmmakers and stars of our industry. To kick us off in this episode, however, I'm going to have a very brief look back at the inception and early days of cinema in Australia. So where did we come in when it comes to the industry worldwide? Well, right at the very beginning, and we didn't muck around. So much so that by the time the rest of the world started making feature films in 1911, Australia had already produced 16, including what is believed to be the first ever feature-length narrative film in the world in 1906. And between 1907 and 1928, over 150 films were produced around the country. Even that, though, is skipping a little too far ahead. We're going to have to go back further, to the late, late 1800s, where it was only 10 months after the first public screening of 10 short films by the Lemire brothers in Paris that American magician Carl Hertz first projected a film for a paying audience in Australia at Harry Rickard's Melbourne Opera House on the 22nd of August 1896. While renowned as a stage magician, Hertz realised early on the potential benefit of projected motion pictures, and is widely credited as not only the first person to project moving pictures in Australia, but also the first to do so in the Republic of South Africa, and also aboard a boat at sea. Just before this, in 1895, one of the first film studios in the world, the Salvation Army's Limelight Department based in Burke Street, Melbourne, began to produce multimedia short films to promote its work, such as 1898 Social Salvation, a short lecture produced by Herbert Booth and filmed by budding camera prodigy Joe Perry, who both in turn soon after that began production on the landmark Soldiers of the Cross in 1899, a two and a half hour narrative lecture incorporating segments filmed around various locations in Melbourne, interspersed with over 200 photographic glass slides. Unfortunately, none of these film segments are known to have survived. However, most of the original 200 slides still exist in the archive in Canberra. 
The lecture was first exhibited at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 13th of September 1900 in front of an extraordinary 4,000 strong audience and soon after became a large success around the country. An unnamed author in the Tasmanian Examiner in January 1901 exuberantly stated, There was a very large attendance and the speaker maintained the interest of his hearers for two hours and a half. Among those present were a number of ministers and aldermen of the city as well as another unnamed author in Adelaide's Advertiser in March 1901. It is safe to say that none of those who had the opportunity of hearing it and of witnessing the marvellously realistic living pictures with which it was profusely illustrated were disappointed. Joe Perry's son Reg, when interviewed in 1967, spoke about his involvement in the making of this landmark presentation. One of my earliest memories was when as a lad of nine, I was kept home from school and taken to the Salvation Army's girls' home at Marambina, where my father, the late J.H. Perry, was making a picture called Soldiers of the Cross. I was dressed in a Roman toga and asked to recant or jump into the lion pit. I jumped into the pit. On another occasion, my older brother and I were dressed as a lion and approached the poor Christians, kneeling in the centre of the arena, which were waiting to be devoured and we'd clamp the jaws on one of the victims, probably one of my own sisters. Also produced by the Limelight Department around this time is what is believed to be one of the world's first documentary films, the inauguration of the Commonwealth in 1901. Helmed again by Perry, the film documents the signing of Australia into the Commonwealth. Filmed mainly from high vantage points, as was necessary at the time, the film is widely regarded as the first time the birth of a nation was captured on film. The Limelight Department was eventually disbanded in 1910 when the at the time newly appointed Salvation Army Commissioner doubted the moral integrity of recent films and shut it down. Perry abandoned his lifelong association with the organisation and continued a career in the film industry, becoming a representative for various film companies until his death in 1943. Soldiers of the Cross, however, is still not viewed as the world's first narrative feature film, as its use of different mediums such as text, graphics, illustrations, and still and moving pictures presented it as more of a multimedia drama presentation. No, that title belongs to 1906's The Story of the Kelly Gang, directed by Charles Tate and produced by the Tate family, with the longest narrative film yet produced at 4,000 feet, or about an hour and 20 minutes. Filmed around the city of Melbourne with Reg Perry as one of the production's camera operators, the film follows the often told story of the adventures and demise of the infamous Kelly Gang, ending with the famous shootout at the Glen Rowan Hotel. For almost a century the film was deemed mostly lost, until incredibly, in the mid-2000s, the discovery of lost footage has led to almost a quarter of the film having been restored for viewing. The surviving film is in remarkable shape, considering its age. If you're keen to check out some of the footage, the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia have released some of the clips of the film online, which I'll link to on social media. The story of the Kelly Gang was a massive success, with the Brisbane Courier citing in February 1907, The Kelly Gang pictures continue to attract large audiences to the Centennial Hall. The building was crowded last night, and the pictures were splendidly received. The entertainment opened with an assortment of comic and miscellaneous films, including illustrations of the work of a dog detective and the adventures of a tub, which caused great amusement. 
The second portion of the program was devoted exclusively to the pictures depicting scenes and incidents in the history of the Kelly Gang. Now, for the life of me, I could not find anything to do with this detective dog and tub. And there was kind of a moment where I was going to dedicate a whole episode to it, but I do digress. The success of the film led to a boom in Aussie filmmaking, mostly centering around, you guessed it, the Bushranger. Bushranging in Australia was at its heyday in the second half of the 1800s, with the gold rush providing ample opportunity for outback outlaws to try and make it rich off local and foreign prospectors while evading the pesky law. Half a century later, and while bushranging had mostly died out, that anti-authority sentiment still remained, propping up these anti-heroes as champions of the people later to be adorned by film. Bushranger films, or I kid you not, meat pie westerns as they are now called, was so successful so quickly that a bushranger film ban was put in place by 1912 in various states in order to prevent the glorification of crime. In fact, between 1906 and 1914, 116 films centering around bushrangers were produced, including Thunderbolt, Moonlight, The Life and Adventures of John Vane, the notorious Australian bushranger, Captain Midnight, the Bush King, Captain Starlight, The Lady Outlaw, Ben Hall and his gang, Dan Morgan, Bushrangers Ransom, and Frank Gardner, King of the Road. An excerpt from the amendment to the New South Wales Theatre and Public Halls Act in 1912 prohibited films with Scenes suggestive of immorality or indecency, executions, murders, or other revolting scenes, scenes of debauchery, low habits of life, or other scenes such as would have a demoralizing influence on a young person, or successful crimes such as bushranging, robberies, or other acts of lawfulness which might reasonably be considered as having an injurious influence on youthful minds. This legislation was put in place in South Australia in 1911 and New South Wales and Victoria in 1912. This first example of film censorship copped an immediate backlash from both filmmakers and cinema owners alike, with H.M. Hawkins, the managing director of Spencer's Pictures, rightly pointing out that A regulation prohibiting the portrayal of acts of lawlessness is harsh in the extreme because practically no dramatic work can possibly be constructed without some wrongdoing in order to point a moral. Much to the detriment of the industry, this ban was kept in place until 1942 with the release of yet another film about the Kelly gang, When the Kellys Rode, a film that had been made eight years earlier. This outlawing of outlaw films set off the rather harsh decline of filmmaking in Australia. The Bushranger band, however, wasn't the only cause. The onset of World War I with artists rushing to capture documentary footage of the war, as well as the introduction of popular overseas films such as the first appearance of Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp character in 1914's Kid Auto Races at Venice, marked a new era in cinema in Australia. The war, however, proved to be the big pivot point in the industry with filmmakers turning away from locally produced dramas to hastily assemble war documentaries, as well as films that set to mimic the British Army's propaganda films that were intended to appeal to patriotism here at home. Almost instantly, documentary titles such as Australia's Response to the Emperor's Call and war dramas Long Long Way to Tipperary and The Day were released towards the end of 1914. In 1915, the incredibly successful The Heroes of the Dardanelles by Alfred Rolf was released, capitalising on the recent successful landing at Gallipoli only a few months earlier. Further to this, 
Filmstop became rare due to its necessity for explosives and the difficulty in importing it from European sources that were now cut off. That's not to say other Australian films went missing in action. While there was certainly a marked decline in the quantity of Australian films, it did set in motion some of our greatest silent era pictures. In 1914, soldiers weren't the only ones heading overseas, when one of our first international stars, Louise Lovely, moved to Hollywood with dreams of stardom. Lovely, born Nellie Carbase, had starred in early Australian flicks for the Australian Life Biograph Company, a studio set up to produce strongly Australian-flavoured films, before the company shut up shop in 1912. After marrying Sydney writer and author Wilton Welsh, they made plans for Hollywood where, not long after arriving, she caught the attention of Universal Pictures, having a screen test and signing to their Bluebird label. After a mostly successful career in film overseas, culminating in her own vaudeville act, she returned home to Australia in 1924 to tour her own show around a number of states. On her return, novelist Marie Bielke-Peterson approached her to produce a film based on her book Jeweled Nights, which would be her directorial debut. Lovely set about gaining financing for the film, with her husband Wilton writing the script while she directed and starred. The film opened in October 1925 and was well received by audiences, however it was not favoured kindly by the critics. With a large financial loss on her hands and the Australian film industry at one of its lowest points, Lovely retired from films disillusioned. She is still known as one of the most successful Australian actors to break into the Hollywood market. Raymond Longford and Lottie Lyle both entered the medium as stage actors and would go on to become one of Australia's most prolific and greatest filmmaking partnerships. Even the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts, or ACTORS, Lifetime Achievement Award is named the Longford Lyle Award, with winners such as Peter Weir, Bud Tingwell, Jackie Weaver and Kate Blanchett. Longford enjoyed a successful theatrical career before appearing in two of our earliest bushranging films, Captain Midnight and Captain Starlight in 1911, before helming his first film in the director's chair that same year called The Fatal Wedding, as well as directing two more films by that year's end, Sweet Nell of Old Drury about the relationship between Neil Gwynn and King Charles II, and the romantic story of Margaret Catchpole, based on the true story of Margaret Catchpole, a convict and adventurer. The latter film featured a young Lottie Lyle in the title role of Catchpole, and would thrust her into the limelight as an international star when the film was exported to the USA under the much easier to understand for Americans name, The Queen of the Smugglers. Throughout the rest of the 19s, Longford and Lyle would go on to produce some of our most successful early films, including The Silence of Dean Maitland in 1914, and the first film dramatisation of The Mutiny of the Bounty in 1916, with Longford writing and directing, while Lyle would go on to become one of Australia's most well-known silent actresses, while also helping with the editing and their filmmaking business. Their immediate success was due to an authentic approach to characterisation, with Longford saying of his directing style when interviewed in 1920, well, The true art of acting is not to act. That's what I have drummed into the ears of my characters, and I think it has had its effect on the naturalness of my pictures. It is the little things that count, the little human touches that build up a big production, and to these I have given the most thought. Longford and Lyle would hit their peak in 1919 with the release of The Sentimental Bloke, 
touted as Australia's greatest silent era film and one of only a few early films known to have survived intact. The Bloke, as it was affectionately known, tells the story of Larrick and Bill, who vows to clean up his gambling and drinking act after a police raid on a game of tour. After meeting pickle factory worker Doreen, with whom he falls in love, the film follows their up and down relationship until they eventually settle down and marry. The film was a huge critical success in Australia, as well as overseas in New Zealand and Great Britain, with this absolutely ripping review in the Adelaide Register newspaper in November 1918, summing it up nicely. The acting was excellent throughout and the orchestra provided a special musical synchronisation. Enthusiastic applause was forthcoming from the audience at the conclusion of the picture. The pair would go on to film the old Australian Dad and Dave stories by C.J. Rudd in On Our Selection in 1920 and its sequel, Rudd's New Selection, in 1921 to more success. Of course, there were certainly other pioneers of film during the 1920s. The McDonough sisters emerged in 1926 with their acclaimed debut feature, Those Who Love, during a time when opportunities for women in the film industry much like now, were few and far between. Writer-director Paulette, art director and publicist Phyllis and leading lady Isabel brought a fresh approach to Australian cinema by bucking the trend and producing Australian versions of Hollywood dramas. As Phyllis recollected to the Australian Women's Weekly in April 1971, It had a human element people wanted. In those days, every Australian-made film made us out to be a lot of bushwhackers on the Dad and Dave theme. The three of us talked and talked and decided if Australia was going to compete overseas, we'd have to meet overseas standards by making interior films. Technically difficult then. The sisters would go on to make four feature films, Too Silent, The Far Paradise in 1928, and The Cheaters in 1929, and what could be Australia's first anti-war film, the 1933 talkie Two Minutes Silence. Just days before Paulette's death in 1978, the sisters were awarded the Longford Lyle Award for their contribution to cinema. In 1927, it was time to go big, with the most expensive silent film ever produced in Australia for the term of his natural life. The big budget drama, based on the book by Marcus Clarke, was intended to hit big in Hollywood and put Australian filmmaking on the map in a big way. Letting go of originally intended director Raymond Longford, American director Norman Dawn was brought in to appeal to US audiences. Dawn brought with him a host of stars from the States to Little Port Arthur in Tasmania where filming was to begin, including the two American leads, George Fisher and Ivan Novak. At the time, Australian film budgets were around £2,000, with the McDonough sisters producing their debut for about 1000 For the term of his natural life, however, was budgeted originally at £15,000 under Longford and was raised to an incredible £40,000 for Dawn, eventually blowing out to somewhere between £50,000 and £70,000 in the hopes of a huge box office hit overseas. So was it a hit? Well, yes, but not quite as intended. The film was a huge hit in Australia but failed to make a dent in the US, losing an absolute truckload upon release. Why? Well, unfortunately, it was mostly a matter of bad timing with the then unforeseen introduction of talking pictures released around the same time. Money wasn't the only thing lost on this enormous production either. During the filming of one of the film's most spectacular scenes, two tons of nitrate film were loaded onto an old sailing ship and set alight. It's believed 
a large portion of Australia's film history went up in smoke that day, rendering a lot of our earliest films lost. The other big film news at the time was the Royal Commission into the Motion Picture Industry conducted in Australia between 1926 and 1928. By the early 1920s, American films dominated Australian cinemas, with Hollywood films cheaper to import than films being produced here at home. With American films already having had their expenses recouped domestically, importing these features was an absolute goldmine for cinema operators. By 1923, 94% of films shown in Australia were from Hollywood. The Royal Commission was launched, featuring notable figures from the film industry as witnesses, including Paulette McDonough, Raymond Longford and Louise Lovely. The investigation was to serve a number of purposes, including introducing a quota of Australian films to be shown in theatres to generate production, revisiting tariffs on imported films, and introducing censorship laws. Evidence was presented from a number of filmmakers, with the Adelaide Advertiser in 1927 reporting of Raymond Longford in the witness stand he did not believe in gunman pictures of the Tom Mix type, nor did Australia wish to have its films Americanized. Certain pictures should be marked as unsuitable for children and there should be projection rooms in schools as an aid to education. The sentimental bloke was made in a backyard at a cost of £2,000 and shown to the world. At least 20 of the 400 imported films should be replaced by local films. While the Sydney Morning Herald reported of Isabel McDonough, the witness considered that for the present, Australia should not encourage the production of costly pictures depicting fashion and dress in competition with America when there was so much scope for simple stories. Too many bush pictures, on the other hand, must become monotonous. The Royal Commission eventually concluded in 1928 with the report citing a number of outcomes, including an age classification system whereby films were marked as either universal viewing or adults only, that a board of censors would be formed to screen imported films, that all cinemas were to be registered, and most importantly, that a quota of British and Australian films would be shown at all registered cinemas. This quota was 5% of films in the first year, 10% in the second year, and then 15% from the third year, with the quotas to begin in January 1929. Unfortunately, these quotas were pretty shabbily enforced, with many theatre owners ignoring them completely, and Australia's film industry remained in the slump. The film's censorship board, however, would become one of the strictest in the world. Come 1930, and the industry was hit by its biggest innovation yet, talking pictures. But I'm going to leave that one for a future episode. So this has certainly been a brief overview of the early days of Australian film, but I'll be doing a bit more of a deep dive into some of these and other stories that I've missed in future episodes. So that's it for this one, but I'll leave you with some words from director Raymond Longford himself. Now to the digressing a little bit back to the business, I would like to see it go ahead, particularly in Australia, in a very, very big degree, the making of pictures, such as television, as they speak about today, that I'm not familiar with. I would like to see it go ahead with leaps and bounds, and particularly the good Australian stories, stories indigenous to Australia, full of sentiment. After all said done, aren't we all sentimentalists? And as myself, well... I'm the sentimental bloke. This episode was written, narrated and edited by myself, Matt Hoffman, with additional voices by Miss Whitrup, 
Sam Peterson, Broden Kelly, Ben Volchok, Luke Leonard, Bart Freeban, Jess Perkins, Liv Hewson, and Catherine Allen. For more information on this episode, please visit www.matthoffman.com AAF and follow at Advanced Australia Film on Instagram and Facebook or at Australia Film on Twitter. And thanks again for listening.